All right, so as I said, um, I'm the substitute uh, this morning, and what I want to do is look at a particular passage in the book of Hebrews, which I think hopefully we'll be able to, um, to understand just picking it out by itself. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, and when the topic of this section is the, uh, the loving discipline of the Lord uh, towards his children. So that's over in Hebrews chapter 12. So Hebrews chapter 12, I want to read um, verses 1 through 13, uh, but we'll probably mainly just cover 4 through 13. I'll I'll give a quick overview of of the context, and then we'll focus in on 4 to 13. But I'm going to read 1 through 13 in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding uh, shedding blood in your striving against sin, and, you have not, and have you forgotten the exhortation which addressed you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are approved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you, that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, We had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness." Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. And we'll end uh, the reading there. So this section, as I said, uh, deals with the discipline of the Lord, and we'll get into that here in a minute, but I wanted to kind of bring us up to speed on the overarching argument or flow of Hebrews up to this point. Uh, here we're very, pretty much at the end of Hebrews. Hebrews has 13 chapters. Here we are in the middle of chapter 12. So one thing that we know about Hebrews, if we know anything about Hebrews, is probably this, that one of the main thrusts of the book is that Jesus is, uh, has supremacy or he is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament shadows, right? He's the true high priest. He's the true sacrifice. We know those things probably. The Hebrews is really an apologetic for Christianity against the continuing Judaism that was going on, the Jews who rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Hebrews says, why would you do that when nothing in the ceremonial system could actually save you? The animal sacrifices couldn't save you. The priests couldn't intercede for you continuously because they died, and they themselves were sinners, etc. So he argues for the superiority of Christ over the Old Testament shadows, and that's one of the major themes. We might know that uh, about Hebrews. 
But one thing that we need to also know, and that really even sets that in its setting, is the overarching theme in Hebrews of continuing to believe. He's arguing, he's, he's arguing, he's preaching to them, saying you need to hold fast your confession of faith. And he says that repeatedly throughout the book. Right? Hold fast your confession of faith. Don't, don't go back to, if you're a Jewish Christian, don't go back to the old covenant system and, and reject Jesus as the Messiah. He's saying stick with Christ. He's the fulfillment of those things. So, and that applies to, to everybody that we don't apostatize. We don't go back on our profession of faith and abandon the church, right? We stick with our confession of faith. That's one of the overarching themes of Hebrews. And the reason that's being brought up here is that we know Hebrews chapter 11, maybe, because it's that famous chapter of, people call it God's Hall of Fame or the Hall of Faith or whatever you want to call it. But what happens, what's going on in Hebrews chapter 11? Somebody tell us what's Hebrews chapter 11 about. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that's one big element of Hebrews chapter 11. You have this list of really chronological list, um, by and large, of people in the Old Testament scriptures. He starts with Abel and goes to Enoch, to Noah, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Dave, you know, and jo- uh, David and Samuel, and all these people that he brings up, showing that by faith, as Neil put it, they're, they're greeting these things from afar. Abraham looked for a heavenly country, etc. And they're also talking about this. Every line or every person that's brought up, it says, by faith, they did whatever they did, X, Y, and Z. That's kind of the, the way that it's, that's uh, formulated. By faith, they did this. By faith, they did that. And what we just saw when we read Hebrews chapter 12, that he's kind of bringing that together. We're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. Well, that's all those Old Testament saints. And they all looked forward to Jesus, and we all look to Jesus too, right? And uh, the point is, is that there's a link, a, a necessary connection between their faith, their trusting in the promises of God, and their obedience to him. Now, for example, if, uh, so God told Noah, there's going to be a flood over the whole face of the earth, you need to build an ark. So let me ask you a question. If Noah did not believe what God said, would he have built the ark? No, why would he? If he didn't believe that the flood was going to happen, he said, well, why would I build an ark? That's a waste of time, right? As his neighbors said, You're, you know, this is foolishness. He, but he did believe God, and therefore, by faith, he built the ark, right, as it says there. So, and that's true of all of these, uh, these people in the Old Testament. By faith, they did this. By faith, they did that in obedience to God. They lived by faith. And what we have here to bring us up to speed in Hebrews 12 we have this example, or illustration rather, of running the race. These are people who have had faith, they professed faith, and they endured in the faith, and they died in the faith. They didn't abandon the, the race. See, this type of race he's talking about is not a race that maybe we think of where it's who, went, who gets there to the finish line first. It's not that kind of race. This is a race of endurance in the sense of who finishes. If you finish the race, you win. If you abandon it, You don't. And and to take away the illustration, he's saying, if you continue to believe and you die in faith, you'll you'll go to heaven. If you don't continue in the faith, you abandon the race, you won't go to heaven. 
And that's something that he's argued really throughout the book in many different ways. So he's saying, endure, 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 keep on believing, because if you don't, if you are, are a professor of the faith, but don't actually possess the faith and you abandon it, he's saying, don't expect to enter into the kingdom, right? These people did, these Old Testament saints did, they finished the race, and it's like this, they've gone to the finish line, and now they're there on the stands, on the sidelines, and we're to look at them and say, let me do what they did. Whatever they did by faith, let me do it too. They're the great cloud of witnesses that we look at. Then the author tells us, verse 2 of chapter 12, we're not just looking to them, they're not the source of our hope. He says in verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and finisher of our faith, or author and perfecter of our faith, right? And he's the ultimate example of one who endured to the end in faith and obedience to the Father, right? He never, he never went back and said, you know what, too much, too much suffering, I'm not going to do what the Father told me to do. Right? He's the ultimate example of one who the Father said, go all the way to death, even death on the cross, and he did. Right? We look to him. Not only does he do that as our example, but you know what? Because he is the Savior, he's the one who gives us the faith and makes us endure to the end if we really are his. Okay, so you have that there. Now, the reason this all goes into our section here is he's saying in verse 4, you know, before that he said Jesus endured hostility, he endured suffering, he died, but that never made him abandon obedience to the Father. He never abandoned his mission. And he says in verse 4, he says, you, the audience, have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. I mean, you haven't, you haven't died for it yet, right? And he says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Okay, so here's where he introduces the, the concept here, the very important theme here of the discipline of the Lord where he is um, making us endure through the race. Okay, so let's, let's look at this. To verse 3 and 4, it says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So consider Jesus, who endured these things. He says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding uh, blood in the striving against sin. So first of all, unlike Jesus, the recipients of this letter hadn't fought against sin to the point of dying for the sake of the faith yet, right, obviously. Um, They say, consider Jesus who suffered all kinds of hostility against himself, and yet he continued to obey God and he never sinned. He never failed under the tests or the temptations that were laid on him. He endured under every trial, every temptation, even to the point of a torturous death on the cross where they were yelling at him, hey, you can save yourself if you're really the son of God. And he, he didn't fail under that test. He continued to obey the Father's will, right? We haven't had to endure even that far have we, right, to the point of shedding blood. We should look to Jesus, though, as the encouragement who has gone way beyond us and still endured, right? He's gone way beyond us in trials and temptations and still endured. We want to look to him. So in in facing persecution, is the example here, in facing hostility, one can be tempted to abandon the Christian faith. That's one issue that the author of Hebrews is, is trying to get them to be encouraged about, that you would say, well, it's just too hard, it's too difficult, there's too much suffering, I can't do it anymore. So he's saying, look to Jesus. So here's the question for you. How can looking to Jesus as the one who endured in faith, even to the point of death, encourage us? 
to continue to endure. What do you think? The exhortation is look to Jesus because he did these things. Right, so hearkening back to Hebrews 4 as our sympathetic high priest, it says he's been under every trial and temptation, yet without sin. So go to him because he'll help you. Right, so we can look to him for help, not as a distant, detached ruler, but as one who's actually gone through everything that we have gone through, every kind of thing we've gone through, yet even endured it and, and shouldered it more than we have. Because what happens when we are tested and when we are tempted? Well, we often just fall under that. But he didn't do that. See, if you put weights on, on you, eventually you just fall underneath it. And you don't really have to endure the full weight because eventually you're crushed under it. Well, Jesus, they, he was piled on with weights of suffering, weights of temptation, and he never was crushed under it. He continued to bear it up. So more and more plates, more and more dumbbells on him or whatever, and he endured it all even more so. He understands it, and he's able to help. Right? So we should look to him as our encouragement, as one who has done it and who understands it and who can, who can enable you to as well. Okay? And that's what kind of leads into our, our main point today that we need to get into so we don't run out of time. In Hebrews 12, uh, 5 to 6, he says, in 5 he says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. And this is a quotation from Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. And it says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Okay? So the point, then, of our sufferings, according to this section as we see, all of our sufferings as Christians, is that they are discipline from God as our loving Father. And we should consider his discipline as loving discipline, and we should receive it willingly as loving discipline. He says, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, or faint when you're reproved by him. Right? We want to take that and recognize this is God's helping us to endure in our race, to finish the race. He disciplines us. When Jesus said this, Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. See, there's that loving motivation to God's discipline. But this raises the obvious question, what is, the, what is discipline? Right? This is really important. If we don't get this, we're missing the whole point. What is the discipline of the Lord? What is it? Somebody, somebody tell us. I'll give a hint. There's two aspects or two types of discipline from God. Okay. And, and for what purpose? I guess, let me put it this way. What are the reasons that God disciplines us? Okay. Very definitely. Let me see if I can more that. I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to probe a certain type of thing here. The what's... Um, why does God, is there something that we do that elicits discipline from God every time? Or is there sometimes one that's not? So somebody, somebody just said, we sin and God will discipline us, right? And, and there's various ways he'll do that. Suffering may be one. So it's kind of like, you know, like a father to a child, like a spanking for sin. This is your discipline in, in a, a correction for a particular sin, Right? 
So when somebody sins, he may, he may discipline that way. But is every suffering and every discipline in response to a particular sin that we commit? No, it's not. Think of, for example, in the Old Testament. Who's somebody who suffered greatly in the Old Testament, but not for a particular sin? Job. Job. But that's still the discipline of the Lord. How so? Because the discipline of the Lord, yes, it can be corrected, but it also is just training. Training to teach you to trust and obey more. Okay, to trust and obey more. So when, when Job goes through all these sufferings, we're told it's particularly not because of anything he did, even though his, his counselors, his friends, said there has to be something. One of the main points of the book is, no, it doesn't have to be for a particular sin. And when Job finally says, you know what, I'm gonna, I need an audience with God, I'm going to ask him, what's the deal here? He says, that God responds to Job when he does that and says this, Job 41 and 2. Then the Lord said to Job, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. He's saying, you really want to question me? And Job responds in verse 3 and 5. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hands on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer even twice and I will have nothing more. He learned, okay, I don't have the right to demand answers from God. And in fact, God doesn't tell him the reason for his sufferings. We know the kind of the backstory that Satan was challenging these things. But Job doesn't know these things. Job suffers not because of a particular sin, but to, to, to help him to learn that lesson that he learned there. I am insignificant. God is God. Is God. I'm not. I need to trust him with my life. So he, he was trained. He learned something. But it wasn't a particular corrective for some sin. that he, he didn't suffer because of some particular sin, we're told. On the other hand, though, sometimes discipline from God is a, a suffering because of a particular sin. You could think of, for example, David. Right? David has a couple examples. David with Bathsheba. And David, when he takes the census, God disciplines him in response to both of those sins. So both are legitimate, okay? So God disciplines us, but the point of this proverb and the point that Hebrews is making is that God is doing this for your good. It's a, it's a loving motivation, right? Discipline is to help you to endure in the race. We're told to endure in the race, you have to lay aside every weight and every sin that entangles you. Well, discipline, God's discipline is enabling you to do that. Right? To get rid of your sins, because if you're disciplined in response to your sin, or anything that's holding you back, a lack of faith or whatever, discipline's going to help make that stronger, give you a stronger faith. It's God training you, keeping that sports race analogy alive. He's really training you to be able to complete the race. He's the, dis- he's the one who's enabling you, strengthening you to get through all the way to the end. If you're truly his, he will discipline you which is what the next verses say, like at 7 and 8. It is for discipline that you, have, that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. See, so far, sometimes when we feel like we're suffering, we would say, well, God, he must not love me. The author of Hebrews said the exact opposite of that, is that because he loves you as his child, He's a good father, and what father is there who does not discipline his son, right? Because discipline is motivated by, by love, by God's love for us. The, the fact that you are disciplined by God, whether for your sins or just to train you to be uh, more faithful, either way, it is God's love that motivates that. If you were without discipline, he says, you're not his child at all. 
Because a father only disciplines his own children, not others' children, right? That's the idea here. If you're really a child of God, he will discipline you. He will train you. So verse 9 and 10, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Okay, so we see a few things here. One, he makes an analogy from earthly fathers to our heavenly father. Look, notice the difference. Is that our earthly fathers, they discipline us, and we respect them. We, we listen to their discipline. We, we submit to their discipline, right? We're corrected by them. We're trained by them. We're taught by them. All that would be under the category of discipline, God teaching us, God training us, God correcting us. Our earthly fathers do that too. We respect them. So why wouldn't we be subject to our Heavenly Father who, does, who disciplines us, but infinitely greater, in an infinitely better way, which is what he argues in verse 10. For our, earth, our earthly fathers disciplined us, one, for a short time, where we're children. But when we grow up, we really don't have much of their discipline anymore, right? What's the difference, though? Our Heavenly Father disciplines us for our entire lives. He trains us and helps us and reproves us to get us all the way to the end, Right? Uh, they also did it, the earthly fathers did it in a way that seemed best to them. How much greater difference is that from a God who disciplines us perfectly for our good every time? See, our earthly fathers, this is, they, they discipline us imperfectly. Uh, Kistemacher said this, this is great. He said, in disciplining their children, parents frequently lack wisdom. Right? Corrective measures are at times too severe and other times are abandoned. Punishments administered in many instances, not in love, but in anger. Parents who are honest with themselves and with their children admit their shortcomings. What a difference when we consider God's discipline. He never makes a mistake, always chastens in love, scourges us, and at the same time comforts us. His discipline does not end when we have reached adulthood. Throughout our earthly life, he trains us. Although we often disappoint him, he never forsakes us. His patience towards us seems unlimited in spite of our lack of progress. See, the, the difference is massive, but his point is, even with our earthly fathers who fail in their discipline, we still submit to that and respect that and learn from them. So why should we cry out against God in, in anger and say, well, God, you shouldn't be doing this to me? Now he's saying, view it as God's love towards you, that you are his child. And what, what father doesn't discipline his child? It's, at, it's for our good. It's out of love that we go through sufferings. He disciplines us for our good, and perfectly so. He's never too severe, never too lenient. He's never kind of not doing his job, never lazy. He always does it perfectly as our Father. So every struggle we face with sin and with sufferings, every test, every temptation, they're all for our good. And it says this, that we may what? Share his holiness. And there you have the purpose of it all. The purpose of these disciplines, whether it's for corrective because of sin or whether it's just teaching us to be more godly, it's for that very purpose, that we would be more holy. Right? He's teaching us to be holier. Okay? So that's what his training is all about. And then we have this, uh, verse 11, to, uh, for, starting verse 11 here. It says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And don't we know it, right? When you're going through discipline from God, it's painful. It's suffering, it's trials, it's these difficult times. 
that he uses to be, for us to be holier. And he says, when you're under discipline, it never feels good in the moment, right? It's like a child getting a spanking. It doesn't, it's not good in the moment. It doesn't feel good in the moment. But ultimately, it's for their good. And it says that here, that afterwards, yet those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You see, so at, at, you're disciplined, it hurts, it's painful, it's not, it doesn't feel good, it doesn't seem joyful, but it seems sorrowful. He says, but what that really is doing is it's going to yield more righteousness in you later on. He's training you to be holier, right? So he's saying the same type of thing there. It's a training thing that God is working in us. Okay, so let me just stop there for a minute. Are there questions about this main point, what discipline is for, is not, not only because of our sins, but also just to train us in, in the discipline of the Lord as he, tra- as he trains us as his children to be godlier. We should not regard it as, as hate from God or something that we despise, but something as, well, this shows that I'm his son and that he loves me because he's, he's disciplining me, and it's going to yield in me righteousness. It's going to yield in me more fruit. So any questions about this point so far? Yes. Yes. Right. And that is through, in this passage, oftentimes through difficult things, through things that don't feel good but are hurtful at the time, but ultimately yield those fruits later on. So that's all, and we could, we could talk about a lot of the particulars, and that is definitely one about what it means to be holy or, or yielding fruits of righteousness. That is one of them. It's not so attached to the transient things, but focused more on the heavenly things of God. So he's saying, the point here is, is in the argument, is saying, don't despise the discipline of the Lord. It's a good thing. It's all for your good. And that's what, look at verse 12 and 13. What we're supposed to do with this fact, these facts, he says, therefore, right, so he's drawing a conclusion here from these points. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So the application of all this instruction about discipline is that we should not just give up and say, oh, it's just too hard when we're under discipline. We're supposed to think of it, this is God loving me. That should be a huge encouragement, right? Strengthen the weak hands and feeble knees. Don't, what is lame, what is, what is hurting, what is ailing, don't let it be put out of joint, but rather strengthened, right? Rather put, be healed, right? We should, instead of viewing our suffering as, as God's punitive justice against us, because it isn't that, it's his loving discipline to train us. So he's saying, lift your drooping hands, don't be so down about your sufferings. Remember, even Jesus suffered. The Son of God suffered, right? Strengthen your weak hands and feeble knees. Don't grow weary of the Lord's discipline. Basically, in other words, trust him through the pain and know that he'll strengthen you spiritually through it. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's so that you'll share his holiness. Remember what Jesus said, John 15, 1 and 2? I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. You know, he's, the, he's the gardener of the vine, right? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That's a false believer. Okay? Bears no fruit. What about this? And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes 
so that it may bear more fruit. What's pruning? When you prune a plant, what are you doing to it? You're cutting it, right? You're cutting it. And the purpose, he says, is that it will bear more fruit. So what does God do to us? He cuts us so that we'll bear more fruit. Right? He cuts us not because he's dealing out justice or because he hates you or something. It's actually the opposite. He says he's pruning us so that we'll share in his holiness. He prunes in us out of love for us because that's part of his, his uh, good plan for us so that we would be godlier, that we would be holier, that we would share in that holiness. He prunes us, he cuts us so that we'll grow. Remember this from Lamentations? Um, let me read this, Lamentations 3, um, 19 to 33. You can turn there if you'd like, but Lamentations 3, 19. About God's attitude towards us in our sufferings. When we're really his children, he's disciplining us for our good, as we've seen. It says this, Lamentations 3, 19. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood, wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Here's what he recalls. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent since he, has la- since he has laid it on him. God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach. For the Lord will not reject forever. This is the key part here. For if he causes grief, then he'll have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. Now, that phrase there, he doesn't afflict willingly. You say, well, wait a second. Well, he, he's afflicting us, so what do you mean? He's, he's, he doesn't want to do it? Well, obviously, he wants to do it in one sense because it's his loving discipline. That's what a good father does. But what it means is that he doesn't do it because he likes to hurt you. He doesn't do it, sometimes it'll be translated from the heart in the sense of, yeah, I just want to. It's like a father, I don't want to spank my son because I like to hit my son. That's not, that's not the motivation. It's because I know this is for his good. And that's the idea here. He causes grief. He afflicts us. But not because he enjoys just the, the joy of afflicting you. It's because he loves you and he wants you to grow and share in his holiness. That's what Hebrews is communicating to us. And that's what Lamentations is as well. His love and kindness. He will later on bear that peaceful fruit of righteousness. And with response to our sin, the psalmist in one, Psalm 119 says this. In 67, he says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. See that? He's in sin, he was afflicted, and now he keeps God's word. Same thing in verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. So God will often put us through hard things so that we can learn to obey him. Whether in response to our sin or like Job, not in response to our sin. One more thing here, and then we may have a few um, minutes for discussion questions. What's interesting here, if we go back to Hebrews uh, chapter 5, there's a verse here that when I was studying through the book of Hebrews, that kind of was a little bit like, what does that mean? Kind of confusing. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Look at verse 7 and 8, but verse 8 is the one in question. So Hebrews 5, talking about Jesus, it says, 
In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. And look at verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Okay, Jesus learned obedience through the things which he suffered. That may sound a little weird. How does Jesus learn obedience? Well, not, in, first of all, not in the same exact ways that we do. Because how do we learn obedience oftentimes? We sin, we sin, we sin, we fail, we fail, we fail, and God disciplines us, and then we learn. Well, since Jesus never failed, never sinned, that's not what it's speaking of there. So it's not in response to correcting him for sin. But one thing that, that is important to understand here, and this section in Hebrews 5 anticipates what we just saw in Hebrews 12, is that Jesus did suffer, and he did learn obedience. That's what the text says. And what, we saw and what we've seen is that Hebrew, or, uh, Jesus, was, Jesus was tempted, tried in every way, yet without sin. That's what Hebrews 4 says. So he suffered, and he suffered, and he suffered. Now, when, a, when we suffer, what do we often do? Sometimes we'll just lash out against God and say, this is not fair. I, I'm, going, I'm going to abandon what I'm doing or whatever. We can just say, you know, that's it. I'm done. But when Jesus suffered, what did he do? He never went that way. He continued more and more and more to obey God. The suffering was, hey, you're suffering, you're suffering, you're suffering. He says, and I will trust God. And I will trust God. And I will trust God. All the way through. And never abandon his mission. Right? When it says in Hebrews 12 that, what father is there who doesn't discipline his son? Well, Jesus, likewise, as the son of God, was disciplined. Not as a corrective to his sin, making that clear, but as something where he, he grew in obedience. He learned obedience through suffering. He was trained in that way, not as a corrective to sin, but as something where he grows and grows and grows in obedience. No matter how much is laid on him, he all the more learns to trust God. Right? Because he was, he was tried and tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. And because of that, we can look at him and say, okay, he understands, he gets it, he's been through it all, and he's able and willing to help us through our sufferings, our trials, our temptations. Okay? So, the point of the passage is, is that we, when we go through sufferings, whether it be for our sins or not, God is using our sufferings to train us, and we should view it that way that's for our good, not in some abstract, vague sense of what's for my good, but particularly, he says, so you'll grow in holiness, that you'll bear more fruit, that you will bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness later on. That's his end, that's his purpose in going, making you go through these sorrowful and difficult things. Um, and ultimately, um, it'll make you holier, and that's his purpose and his loving discipline. Okay. First, I'll, you have a couple minutes. Are there any questions about that? And then I have a few discussion questions we might be able to get to if we have a couple minutes. But are there any questions about the content? Okay. So James 1, verse 2 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Right? James says that right in the beginning of his book. How, why does it take faith, or in what way does it take faith, in order for us to count our trials as joy? Because we don't see 
So what promise of God do we trust in to count it as joy? Mm -hmm. And what, what did we just see? It's so that later on, you will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So God's going to use this to make me holier. That's what he's doing. That's his purpose in it. So we can count it all joy when we meet all these different sufferings. Because we know it's for our good. It's God's loving discipline. So, what about this? Let's make a distinction here. Sometimes we use these words interchangeably, but we'll make a distinction in them. Does God punish us for our sins? What do you think? So he disciplines us for our sins, but doesn't punish us for our sins. What's the difference? Jesus took our punishment for our sins. Mm-hmm. Right. So is, when you're suffering for sin, is it because God is dealing out justice you know, because of your sin? He's, he has a, a wrath against you that he has to level out on you? No. And that's not what Hebrews says, is it? It says it's for love that he does that. Lamentations, he afflicts you, not from the heart, but in his loving kindness he does so. Okay, whenever we meet trials of various kinds, is it always because of sins we've committed? No. Job is a great example. You know who's a better example? Jesus Christ, right? All of his sufferings, every last one of them was not because of his own sins. He had none, right? But yet he still suffered. How can we learn to obey through sufferings? Mm-hmm. So you see that this is God's purpose in this. So I, what do I need to learn, right? What are some What are some practical things that we may learn when we suffer? You know, from experience, things you say, okay, I valued something that I shouldn't value, or whatever. What are some things that you learn through suffering? His faithfulness. You learn to trust Him more. His promises. Okay, very good. What else? teaching us how to endure in the race, right? It'll help us lay aside every weight and every sin. You think of that illustration. You're running a race, and the purpose is to finish the race. But you have all these weights attached to your legs. You're going to want to give up eventually. You're just not making, just not making progress. So this is just too hard. You're trying to run, but you've got 100 pounds on your legs. He says, cut those off. Cut those weights off and get going, right? And that's what discipline God does with us, is that he's helping to cut all those things that weigh us down in, in going towards the race. Because basically the idea is that when it comes to apostasy, he's saying people have all these weights, and they say, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to continue. And he's saying, no, 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 you don't do that. You look to Jesus, 
You look at him, he, can, he is the one who helps you. He is the one who helps you cut off the weight so that you can go all the way to the end. And what that means is you keep on believing and you die in the faith. You die trusting Jesus as your savior. Okay, real quick. Should we, avoid, should we try to avoid the discipline of God when he is disciplining us? <laughs> Somebody say no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. So in one sense, just to be clear, if, if we're being disciplined because of a sin, well, then we should repent of that sin and forsake the sin, and God may take away the discipline. However, even so, the discipline is for our good in and of itself. Okay? It doesn't mean that we, um, that we try to make our lives as miserable as possible. The point is, is that God will bring us through things to teach us. He'll train us. He'll discipline us, disciple us um, to be holier and to keep on in that race. Okay, well, we need to conclude. Are there any questions as we end here? Yeah, maybe a minute, and then we need to quit. All right, well, let's go ahead and close then. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that you love us and that you discipline us in your love. I pray that you'll help us to remember your promise there that whenever we're suffering, it's not because you hate us or because you're getting even with us, but because you love us as, as your children and that uh, a good father disciplines their children. And yet we need to be trained. And um, we just thank you that you will um, bring our faith to completion, that we will continue to believe because you are holding on to us, that Jesus is the author, he originates our faith, and he finishes it. Um, he perfects it, completes it in us as well. Uh, we thank you for your sovereign power to keep us forever and that you keep all of your children um, and uh, that you love us enough to, uh, to teach us these things. And we pray that you'll help us to grow in faith as we go through various trials to count it as pure joy.